Morning, saints. I was thinking on my ride over here what an advantage it is to give a sermon uh, when we have a fellowship meal because everybody's in a good mood. Then I realized that you guys are eating after the sermon, uh, not before the sermon. Um, And then my thoughts were, well, at least the building's warm. And I saw Nathan blowing into his hands, and I'm like, well, that's that's not going to work either. Uh, So then my thoughts went to God will provide. So that's where we are. Um, Our sermon this morning comes from the story found in the book of Judges. Uh, It's a story about the fleece of Gideon, a story that's probably familiar to most of you. Uh, If you grew up in the faith, you most likely learned the story from a children's Bible um, or a Bible study of some sort. Uh, In fact, I looked at the complete illustrated children's Bible that we have at our house uh, that we read to our grandchildren, and sure enough, the story of Gideon was there. It's a story sometimes wrongly used as an example of what you should do to understand the will of God, and at times the story is used rightly to hold him up as a man of faith. I'm going to begin this morning by providing some context to a larger theme that runs through the Old Testament, and then I'm going to summarize the story of Gideon up to the point where we get to the fleece of Gideon, uh, and then we can learn about what it teaches us about our God. First, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence and your spirit with us this morning. I pray that you would remove all distractions from our mind and that you would provide us with attentive ears to hear your word. I pray that the truths of your word would be profitable to our ears and encouragement to our hearts, and that in everything only you will be exalted. Amen. Amen. Our time together will be better informed if you follow along in the Bible. There's some Bibles uh, in the chairs in front of you or near you. Uh, If you could reach for those now, um, and if you have trouble finding Judges, you can find it on page 200. The Word of God comes to us this morning from Judges 6, verses 36 through 40. Hear the Word of the Lord. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Before unpacking the passage together, I, I want to provide you with some background that I think is going to help us understand Judges and its contextual fit uh, in the Old Testament, specifically with the, with the Bible, um, specifically with the Old Testament. Um, the book of Judges records what happens to the people of Israel during 350 years that they live side by side with their uh, pagan idolater neighbors. It's a period of time situated right after Moses and Joshua, but before Saul and King David. It records for us a time when the Hebrew people were stuck in a repetitive cycle of sin, punishment, and deliverance. Sin, punishment, and deliverance. They would fall into idolatry and immorality, sin, and God would punish them in some way, usually by allowing their neighbors to overtake them. 
Then Israel would cry out to Yahweh for deliverance, and he would raise up for them a conqueror to defeat the enemy. This cycle happened seven times over a period of 350 years. For clarity's sake, a judge during that time is not what we would think of as a judge today. They were not appointed or elected officials presiding over court proceedings wearing long black robes. The Hebrew word for judge is closer to a deliverer or a rescuer or a savior chosen by God to save his people. When we read the book of Judges, it's somewhat easy to get distracted by the heroic feats, heroic feats performed by the protagonist in each story. But it's important that we consider not so much what each character in each story is doing, but what God is doing. When we step back and away from the hero and take a broader look or a broader view of the through line that runs through the Old Testament, what we see is that God is at work preserving the promise that he made to Abraham and the nation, a promise that he would bless the world and bring forth the seed that would be the Messiah. You could look at the book of Judges as a collection of historical events recording for us recording for us uh, God's faithfulness to his people. Gideon was the fourth judge raised by, up by God in the book of Judges. His story is a chiasm, or the middle story of seven stories you're going to find in the book of Judges. In Hebrew literature, as Nick taught us last week, whenever you encounter a chiastic structure, you should pay extra attention to the messages and ideas of that story, because you're going to find the point of emphasis in that story. And from that story, it helps us understand the other stories and judges. The story of Gideon is fascinating in many levels. In Gideon, you have a mixture of doubt and unbelief, cowardice, and weakness. Someone so unremarkable that you wonder why God would choose someone like him as a rescuer or a savior. Gideon is probably the most unremarkable characters you're going to find in the book of Judges. But that's precisely the point, isn't it? God doesn't choose the wisest or the richest or the most connected to do his work. He chooses ordinary people like you and me. This really should be an encouragement to us. The story of Gideon begins in Judges 6, verses 1 and 2, when we read, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. The Midianites and the Amalekites and the other eastern people were terrorizing the Israelites. They were entering their land during harvest, stealing grain and livestock and using the Israelite land as their own grazing land for their own livestock and their camels. They were killing people with immunity, so much so that the Israelites took to living in caves and mountain clefts. This happened for seven years straight, making the Israelites cry out to the Lord once again. God heard their cries and again began his redemptive plan to restore his people to himself and to preserve his covenant. Gideon was approached by the angel of the Lord while he was hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat. Now, wine press is usually circular and built below the surface of the ground so that if you're in it, you cannot be seen. It's also usually used for pressing grapes and not for threshing wheat. The significance of threshing wheat here is that Gideon was afraid and didn't want to be seen by the marauding invaders. At first, he didn't recognize the angel of the Lord because the angel of the Lord came to Gideon as a man or a traveler. And we know this because in verse 21, we learn that he held a staff. 
the angel of the Lord greeted Gideon with a peculiar greeting. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. This greeting was strange given the context because, as I said, Gideon was hiding for the Midianites. At the time, it was hardly exuding any type of bravery. But God already knew the plans that he had for Gideon. God already knew what he was capable of, even when Gideon didn't see it. Gideon replied, but sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all of, all of this happened to us? Where are all of the wonders of our fathers, our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring you up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. Now, there are a couple of noteworthy points to make here. One is that this exchange with the angel of the Lord shows us that the Israelites had not totally turned their backs on the God of their fathers, but had instead added the false god, false gods to their worship. They conflated the one true God with the God of their neighbors, and so they fell into the pagan mindset that if things were going well, God was with them, and if things were not going well for them, then God had abandoned them. In Judges 7 through 10, we learn that God did not deliver Israel immediately, but instead sent them an unnamed prophet to remind them of their unfaithfulness to the God who saved them out of Egypt. What we see once again is the fundamental problem for Israel is not so much their suffering at the hands of the Midianites, which was real, which was real, but it was their idolatry and their disobedience to the God with whom they had made a covenant. In order for them to be restored, they would have to renounce all other gods and return to Yahweh. So the Lord turns to Gideon and tells him, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Gideon gives the angel of the Lord reasons why he can't do this, and the Lord says to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midian, Midianites as one man. Gideon, unsure with whom he is speaking, prepares a meal for the stranger. And this was customary during that time for Semitic people that when they had a visitor that you would make a meal for them. He prepares a young goat, unleavened cake and broth. And the angel of God says to him to place the food on a rock and pour the broth over it, and he does so. The angel of the Lord reaches out with his staff and consumes the meal in a blaze of fire. And then he disappears. Gideon then becomes convinced that this was indeed the angel of the Lord. He's terrified that he's going to die. As Nick reminded us in his sermon last Sunday, reverent fear is the right posture to have when you encounter the Lord. The Lord reassures him that he will not die and commands him to tear down the altar of Baal, Asherah. He takes 10 servants and he does as he's commanded to do, tearing down the altar at night. I don't know if there's any symbolism uh, in the number 10, but I do know that you can work faster with 10 men than you can with three or four. And I think that was probably the intent Notice also that the altars were not taken down during the light of day, but during the cover of night. What the author is doing here is cleverly dropping hints about Gideon's character that he wants us to pick up on. Gideon is not a brave man. At this point in his life, he's a coward, and he fears man more than he fears the Lord. The townspeople are infuriated, want to kill him for tearing down the altar of Baal, but he's saved by the words of his father who tell the people that if Baal is a god, he can contend for himself. Of course, Baal doesn't possess any power and nothing happens to Gideon. 
I think it's appropriate to take a pause and consider that before asking Gideon to complete his divine task to smite the Midianites, God asked him to destroy the altars of false gods that he and his family in the village had worshipped. He wants them to see that the God that will save them from the hands of their enemy is not Baal or Asherah, but the one true living God. This also happens before Gideon is closed by the Spirit. The point here is Gideon and Israel have to be aligned with Yahweh first and remove the idols from their lives before God would move to save them. The lies and worship of Baal and Asherah have to be the first things to go. And we see why when we read what the Lord said to his people in Exodus 20, verses 2 to 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the, hand, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not, not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I... The Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So one of the things God wanted to do was remind them of his promise, reminding the Israelites that he's a jealous God who's going to tolerate no competition. But he's also showing his steadfast love to those that keep his commandments. In the meantime, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east, they crossed the Jordan and encamp in the valley of Jezreel. It's then that Gideon is clothed by the Spirit, and he raises an army of the Lord and is almost ready to do the task that God has asked him to do. Kind of ready. Uh, ready to obey, maybe. Is he ready to smite and defeat the enemy? Almost. And this is where the story of the fleece of Gideon enters our narrative. Uh, Judges 6, 36, 40. I'm going to read again our focus passage. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. Then he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece and wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill the bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it dry, be dry on the fleece only and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. There are going to be three points that I'm going to try to uh, illustrate in this passage. Uh, for those that are taking notes, get your pens ready. Uh, point one is Gideon's doubt and fear, and you're going to find that in verses 36 and 37. Point two is God's patience and grace. You'll find that in verse 38. And then point three, Gideon's final test. That you'll find in verses 39 and 40. I want to begin by exploring what Gideon is not doing and kind of take that off the table right off the bat. Um, so what he's not doing when he lays down the fleece is testing the will of God. God had already made it perfectly clear, crystal clear, in fact, to Gideon what he wanted him to do. Look back at Judges 6, verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. 
do I not send you? A little further down, verse 16, And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midians as one man. God's command to Gideon was clear. He was to save Israel from the hand of Midian and strike them as one man. However, Gideon was hesitant. He was reluctant. He needed assurance that victory was going to be guaranteed. So point one, verses 36 and 37, we see Gideon's doubt and fear. Notice particularly the conjunction if is followed by the condition. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Gideon's not making a request of God from a place of faith. Rather, it's coming from a place of doubt and fear. Remember that Gideon was only recently called by God to, to be the Israelite deliverer and save them from the nomadic tribes that had terrorized them for the past seven years. He was an ordinary man experiencing the natural fear of going into battle. And I'm sure that he had many thoughts and doubts running through his mind. Am I really the one that's supposed to deliver the people from the hand of Midian. Could all this be a misunderstanding? Could there be a mistake? Could the angel of the Lord have meant to stop at Gideon from up the street uh, near the pistachio tree instead of my house? There's also doubt about the God who made the promise. Although Gideon is an Israelite, he doesn't really know the Hebrew God of his fathers very well. There's even some more doubt and questions that creeps into his mind. Can this God actually deliver on his promise? Is he really that powerful? Can the stories that I heard about this God really be true? God was leading him for sure, but Gideon needed to be reassured. Now, if you're like me, you're, prob you're probably wondering why Gideon would show unbelief and doubt so soon after his experience with the angel of the Lord. At least that's what went through my mind. After all, he was witness to the consumption of the offering in a blaze of fire. And the Bible doesn't describe this as like a little butane flame that you get from, from one of those things. It was a big blaze of fire. And it had to be so hot and in intense that it consumed uh, the offering in the blink of an eye. As Nick also taught us last week, God at times appears in the Old Testament as fire. Gideon was familiar enough with the stories of the Hebrew God so his posture was reverent fear in the presence of God, and that's justifiable. The difference here is that the fear experienced by Gideon in verse 36 comes not from a place of reverence, but from a place of doubt. Doubt that he was the right person for the job, doubt that Yahweh had the power to follow through with his word, and even some doubt that Yahweh was more powerful than the gods that he had just destroyed. Friends like Gideon, when the spirit closes, it takes time for us to shed our old ways of thinking, to shed our old ways of speaking, and to shed, shed, shed our old ways of acting. It doesn't happen overnight. But as our faith grows, the old ways are left behind. Gideon was afraid to step out in faith with the Hebrew God because he had remnants of the old God still lingering in his mind. He was still in a mental competition for him between Yahweh and the gods that he had just destroyed. One commenter characterized the fleecing this way. Fleecing is nothing short of a pagan divinatory test of deity. 
The fleece incidents are far from a model for the discernment of God's will. His problem is the lack of willingness to trust in the Lord or take him for his word. Thus, the fleece incident is about Gideon's unbelief and stubbornness in response to God's call. In such cases, God is not obligated to respond, and if he does so, it's only by his grace. Those who use this passage as a means of discerning God's will are simply misapplying scripture. Now, this is not to say that God cannot and does not provide signs. We see throughout scripture that God uses miracle to confirm signs of divine revelation. And we even saw that he gave Moses the burning bush. Uh, he gave them a staff that turns into a serpent. And he even gave him leprosy for a short time to convince him that he's going to use him to do his work. However, de demanding signs and setting conditions for God is not a good idea, and what it reveals is a lack of faith. Jesus had this to say in Matthew 16, 2, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees asked him for a sign from heaven. An evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Jesus again speaking to Satan in Matthew 4, verse 7. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 and 23, for the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. Saints, learning to trust God and walk with God and depend on him even in darker times when things are not always crystal clear is mainly how God is glorified. And when you kind of think about it, that really defines Christian faith. Putting down a fleece to discover God's will in a way that sets condition for God's assurance is not what believers do and doesn't show faith. If, for example, I was trying to buy a house and I put a bid on a house and I say to God, if the realtor doesn't call in the next 30 minutes saying that they accepted my bid, I'm going to know that it's your will, God, that this is not the house for me. The problem with that is what do you do if he calls in an hour or in 35 minutes? It's sinful to set conditions for God, to create hoops for God to jump through, to know his will. What it shows, frankly, is an immature faith and questionable questionable theological thinking. It's not wrong to want to know God's will, but that's not the way to go about it. So how then can we know God's will? Well, first of all, let us all be freshly reminded that as believers, we have the Holy Spirit to guide us in all things. Submitting ourselves to God's will means making our will small or non-existent and allowing the will of God to speak through us in our prayers and our meditations. Furthermore, if we believe that the Bible to be the inerrant word of God, and I know that we do, we should rededicate ourselves to understanding Scripture better so that we can better discern God's will and inform our walk. The point is that we have avenues to access, uh, to access and better know the will of God. Being in God's word helps us to filter out the voices of the world and the worldly standards that are set up against us. Being in the Word helps us to confidently make decisions and remove fear and anxiety from our lives. Scripture encourages us in 1 Timothy 1, verse 7, that God has given us a spirit of fear, not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Friends, we can't forget where our power comes from or even that we have it. 
When we're in God's Word, we're able to distinguish God's will from our own desires and thoughts, which are usually selfish, and elevate our wants and needs above God's will. Gideon wasn't asking to discover God's will when he laid down the fleece. What he was asking God to do was confirm what he already knew, what God had already made perfectly clear to him. Can we sometimes be guilty of doing the same thing? Do we not sometimes know the will of God, but choose clever ways to avoid following his voice? Do we not convince ourselves that we can watch inappropriate images on television or on the internet, or to gossip or to post things on social media that belies our belief in God? Do we lay down mental fleeces that showcase our doubt in the almighty creator of life? Think a spiritual audit on our lives and how we react to the idols in our orbit might reveal that we're more like Gideon than what we care to admit. As Christians, we have to be on God or on guard of the demonic temptations and misdirections of Satan. We need to be more aware of that the moral background and experiences that are a part of us because of our upbringing can provide us with distorted lenses of the world that can manifest in, in extreme legalism, for example, or make us insensitive to our own sins. We can, however, re-educate our conscience through the word of God and seek his ways. God is not going to tell you to do something that's contrary to his own word. So if you study and learn the Bible, we're going to get better at discerning God's voice from the voices of the world and even your own. Fortunately for Gideon and for us, God shows us patience and grace to grow in conformity to his purposes. So in point one, we saw Gideon's doubt and fear. In Judges 6, verse 38, we see point two, God's patience and grace. Verse 38, and it was so when he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Gideon, I think we have to remember, was a farmer. His clan was the weakest in Manasseh. He was the least of his father's house. He's the most unremarkable character in the entire book of Judges. However, God chose him to be the conduit to display his awesome power. He was the instrument that God chose to use to rescue his people. God was very patient with Gideon, holding his hand throughout the entire process, building him up, condescending to his request until he became a mighty warrior in faith. Spoiler alert, just in case you haven't read through it. God saw in Gideon how he was going to use him from the beginning, since even before the first greeting. God didn't see a weak man, but he found Gideon and the Israelites at their weakest. Gideon was threshing wheat while hiding from the invaders, afraid to be discovered and harmed. And the Israelites were impoverished, and demoralized, afraid to resist their enemies. That God should find us at our weakest and want to help, friends, should be an encouragement to us and a testament to who our God is. In the same way that God knew Gideon, God knows who you are and the plans that he has for you in your life. Friends, take heart that the God who knows the beginning from the end, who has numbered the hairs on your head, who knew you before you were formed in the womb, is a sovereign, patient, and graceful God. You may not know what God will provide for you in your life, but rest assured that he knows what you need even when you don't. 
Gideon was growing in the knowledge and grace of God. He was not a finished product, just like we aren't a finished product. Our life, like Gideon's, is a continuous process of learning and maturing, as well as failing and recovering and adjusting and enduring and overcoming. Because in our present state, we're able to see just but a poor reflection as if in a mirror. Gideon didn't see in himself what God saw in him or even envision what God, how God would use him. And these are times, friends, when we have to step up in faith to a God that who is unseen, a God we know has a track record for keeping promises. That's a God from whom we can draw hope. Verse 38 says that when Gideon squeezed the fleece, there was so much water that it could fill a bowl of water. Fill a bowl, excuse me. God answered Gideon's test with an abundance of life-giving water, more than Gideon could have expected. And in the same way, Jesus promises us a life that is far better than we could ever imagine. It's a concept that's reminiscent to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, which says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We have a loving and caring God that we can trust, a God that is patient, and a God whose spirit produces a patience in us, in us. When we're patient, we leave room for God to work in our hearts and in our relationships. We lay down our schedule and trust in God's. We're able to reflect on and give thanks to the Lord for the things that he's brought to us in our lives. As the spirit produces patience in us, friends, He's also making us more Christ-like. Saints, it's only God's patience with us that led us to repentance. It is only God's patience and grace that prevents him from destroying us as objects of his wrath. As you might recall, Paul glorified the Lord for his unlimited patience that saved him, the worst of sinners, as he called himself. And Peter, in turn, highlights the patience of God by pointing out that God had immense patience with the people with the evil people of Noah's day, delaying their judgment as long as possible. Today, friends, the Lord's patience and grace gives people like you and me time to get saved. So I would say this to the unbelievers in the room this morning. God's patience of grace is as much for you as it is for me. Because of his love for us, God has made it exceedingly simple for us to become a Christian. All you have to do is receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and fully accept his death as sufficient sacrifice for your sins. Repent your sins and turn away from them and place your trust in Christ alone as your Savior. Do that, friends, and you have the right to be called a child of God. If you want to know more about God, how God can work in your life, I know this has been said from this pulpit many times, Come see me, talk to me. I'll be in the tunnel after the, the sermon uh, or one of the other elders that are here in the church or really anyone that's part of our congregation. I think any one of us would love to have that conversation with you. God was patient with Gideon, giving him time to grow in his faith, time to make mistakes and seek his ways. Jesus promises us in the parable of the good shepherd that if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, that we're going to be able to know his voice that we would be able to recognize his voice. 1 John, verse 1, 7 through 9. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out 
all the, out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will follow, but they will not flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. God's patience with us allows the Spirit to do his work in us. As we walk with Jesus, we become better at recognizing his voice and allowing the voice to function as our internal teacher. God's patience with us gives us time to discern God's voice clearly and also time for us to, to identify and confess our sins. We can't harbor sin in our hearts and hear his voice clearly. We, we have, when we have unconfessed sin or underconfessed sins in our hearts, God's voice becomes muted and small can't be heard through our calloused hearts. Unconfessed sin also separates us from God and damages our relationship with him. When we cling to our sin or it clings to us, it distorts what we might hear from God. Because we are imperfect sinners living in an imperfect world, we tend to justify our sin even against God's clear word. God's patience makes room for us to make mistakes. We sometimes sin in shameful and grievous ways, but the Holy Spirit allows us to move forward and not linger and wallow in our sin for very long. 1 John verse 1, 7 through 9 encourages us by saying, if we walk in the light as he is light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our God is patient. Use that time that God has given you. It's a gift to reflect on and repent of sin and to be able to discern God's pushes and tugs of your heart. So in point one, we saw Gideon's doubt and fear. Point two, God's patience. Now we get to point three. This is my shortest point, but... Gideon's final test. Look at verses 39 and 40. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. Now Gideon was well aware that testing God was not something that he should do. The fact that he says, let not your anger burn against me, verifies his concern that God might be angry with him, and even that he was pushing it with God just a little bit. He pleads for God's indulgence, and God does give him his indulgence and, and does what Gideon asks him to do. Gideon, it seems, is once again trying to get a guarantee that God is speaking to him and is going to grant him victory. Gideon lays down a second fleece asking for the opposite to happen, the fleece to remain dry and the surrounding ground to be wet. Fear, doubt, and lack of faith were certainly at play, but I think something else might have been going on through Gideon's mind on this final test. So dew was important to ancient Near Eastern agriculture. Uh, the climate there is so hot and dry that often the dew is the only thing that keeps the vegetation alive during drought and heat. Now, during Gideon's first test with the fleece, the fleece was dripping wet in the morning, and he's able to wring a bowl full of water from it, but the ground around the fleece remained dry. In the second test, as I read, he, he asked for the opposite. 
I think it's important to remember that Gideon, along with the Israelites, had a corrupted pagan view regarding how gods worked. Baal was the Canaanite god of the storms, which included lightning and rain. In one Baal story, his weakness results in a drought of both rain and dew. Baal's daughter, Talia, it turns out, is thought to be responsible for dew. The Hebrew word for dew in Judges is tail, or tau. There's a chance that Gideon was putting down the fleeces to see if Yahweh was truly greater than Baal. In other words, Gideon may not have been totally convinced that Yahweh was, was the greater God, not yet at least. So the fleece tests are a final way to put to rest Gideon's Canaanite way of thinking, and more importantly, to help him finally understand that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true eternal living God that he and the Israelites can trust. Why does God condescend to respond to Gideon's tests? Well, the answer is God's covenant faithfulness as well as his grace. God acquiesces, acquiesces isn't meant to condone Gideon's Canaanite worldview or even his audacity in demanding signs. Instead, God's patience and indulgence shown to Gideon highlight the reach of his grace toward both Gideon and Israel, with whom he had a covenant. He nurtured Gideon along, growing him as he addressed his lack of faith, fear, and faulty theology. The story of Gideon is not meant to be imitated as a rightful way to know God's will. We shouldn't test God, but believe in him. What we should learn from the story is that God is greater than any false God. God is faithful. God is reliable. And God always, always keeps his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your written word and stories like Gideon that teach us that sometimes Scripture records for us events that, are, that we're to learn from and other times are meant to be clear examples for us to follow. We thank you, Lord, that your word is sufficient in all things and consistent in all things. We're grateful, Lord, that through the study of your word and the help of the Spirit that we're better able to synchronize our walk with you and discern your will. Amen.